between three and three to 14 groups happening a bit later on. Uh, we'll stay together for 20 minutes or so, um, and then they'll get a chance to go to their groups if they want to downstairs at that point. Um, now, can anyone tell me who said these words? Earlier on today, apparently, a woman rang the BBC and said she heard there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. Michael Fish. Anyone remember the year? Oh. Okay. Yes. Yeah, well done. Good observation. Michael Fish in October 1987. So, there he was, very confidently uh, announcing um, this nonsense about a hurricane. Well, within about 10 hours, this had happened. Uh, all the trees ripped out in Kew Gardens right across the south of England. Um, cars devastated. Um, buildings ripped apart. So there you go. That, that's what's happened if you listen to British weather forecasters. Apparently there is now the fish effect, um, which is that if in doubt, weather forecasters now say that things are going to be much worse uh, just in case. It's called the fish effect within the weather forecasting establishment. A little tidbit of information for you this morning. God speaks a word that is utterly trustworthy. Here's the verses from Psalm 119 that we're beginning with this morning. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. That's God's great promise, that his word is faithful. He is faithful. Maybe this morning you're still working out what you make of God and what you make of the word that he speaks. This is his claim of an utter trustworthiness. We're going to stand and sing about this God in our first song. Great is your faithfulness, O God, my Father. Let's stand and sing. Faithful. 
to you, grateful to you that your mercies are everlasting. Thank you that you have met us in our need and provided. Thank you that the promises you make to us are sure and trustworthy. Uh, We've sung that morning by morning, new mercies I see. Uh, Father, open our eyes to see more of your mercy, more of your grace, more of your goodness to us as we gather together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Do take a seat again. Now, um, Richard's got something for us, and uh, we need to gather some of the children at the front so that they can help him with that. So if any of the younger people want to come and sit on the mat at the front, that would be lovely. Come forward. While you're doing that, I can alert somebody who's got a silver citroen with a registration number that begins BNO2, um, that if you're able to move it, that some people will be able to get out. That would be lovely. Um, Richard, I'm going to hand over to you. Well, here in church, we're in the, um, we're in the business of good news. Am I on? Hello, hello. Um, We're in the business of good news, and the football last night for Chelsea supporters like me was good news. But for Tottenham supporters like our dearly beloved vicar, it was bad news. But uh, this verse here is good news for everybody, and we're going to spend a moment thinking about what it means. When I was um, about your age... Being safe was really important to me. I needed to know that I was safe and secure. And being at home with my mum and dad and brothers and sisters, I felt very safe and secure. And it's my guess that many of you want to know that you're safe too. In fact, even as a grown-up, I still want to know that I'm safe and secure. Most of us here need to know that we're safe. And as I was thinking about this business of being safe at home, your home's a long way away, yes. I thought about another family 
and about them being safe at home. And here they are here, three little pigs. Do we know that family? Hands in the air if you know the story. Good. Grown-ups, do we know the story? Good, lots of hands. Great. Let's just remind ourselves uh, how it works. So the three little pigs were sent out by mum into the world to find their way. And the youngest pig went and built himself a house. Anyone tell me what the house was built of? Emily? Straw. Brilliant. Youngest one built a house of straw. And one day the big bad wolf came knocking on the door and said, let me in, let me in. And the little pig inside... Great, well, listen in. I won't let you in, not by the hairs of my chinny, chin, chin. I won't let you in. And the wolf said, well, I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow your house down. And he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down. And the poor little pig, he had to escape and run and hide and he went off to his brother's house. He'd also built a house. Anyone remember what that house is built of? Anyone else? Uh, Bethany? Sticks, brilliant. Second pig built a house out of sticks. But the same thing happened. The wolf came knocking and his house got blown down too. So the two of them had to run to their older brother's house and he'd built a house, Alicia, out of? Bricks. And here we can see a picture of them in their house of bricks. It's such a great house, it's got a brick piano and I especially love the picture on the wall. Can you see what the picture on the wall is? Nice pork sausages. So there they are, the three pigs safe in their house. And just as they were safe when they were together in their brick house, you and I can feel safe where we're, when we're at home with our families. But the verse we're thinking about this morning teaches us that there's an even safer place than that. Because what the story of the three little pigs doesn't tell us, and what the Bible does tell us, that even brick houses get blown away and disappear. I think that's what Jesus means when he said this verse here. Heaven and earth will pass away. We need to be clear that there is nowhere truly safe in this world because walls come tumbling down. Even the ground beneath our feet will disappear. But the second half of this verse tells us where we can be truly, truly safe. Jesus says, my words will never disappear. You see, what Jesus has said, what Jesus promises will always come true. And his words will go on being true even after everything in the world has gone. Even the heaven and earth have disappeared. So why don't you tonight, this afternoon, dig out your book, The Story of the Three Little Bigs, and read it with mum and dad. And when you read it and you get to the end and you see the house standing firm, say, hey mum, hey dad, there's a place that's even safer than that, and that's with Jesus. Listening to his words, believing they are true, and doing what they say. I'm going to say a prayer now for all of us that we would do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus.
We thank you for his wonderful words, uh, which will never disappear, which will go on being true throughout all eternity. Help us to listen to them, to believe they are true, and to do what they say. We need your help with this, Father, so please would you help us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well done for listening so well. I think we're going to go back to mums and dads and um, leave Steve to take us on. Thank you, Richard. There's a strange thing about us, though, that even though God speaks to us words of great trustworthiness, words we can really rely on, and even though those words tell us of an abundant, rich love for us, uh, we find it hard to believe them. We find all sorts of other voices that seem louder to us, more interesting, more important, more urgent. Uh, And the prayer that we are going to pray next uh, acknowledges that while God's love for us is so faithful, so sure, our love in return for him, uh, so often like a morning cloud, like dew, uh, that's gone in a flash uh, through the day. So if you want to acknowledge uh, these things to God, uh, then we can join in saying it. Let's be quiet for a moment first. Maybe there are particular things on our minds and hearts that we want to bring before him. And then we'll join in these words together. So we say together, Lord, our God, in our sin we have avoided your call. Our love for you is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Have mercy on us, deliver us from judgment, bind up our wounds and revive us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah speaks these words. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Stand to sing.
Father, to you indeed does belong the highest praise, for you have reached us in our need and uh, provided a grace uh, that is uh, deep enough uh, to rescue and save and lift us up. Uh, Father, for these great mercies, none of which we deserve, uh, we are very grateful and do indeed praise you. Amen. Do take a seat again. If, if what we've just been talking about, what we've just been singing about, that, that grace, uh, that kindness from God, this, this salvation that reaches to us in need, if all of that is, is really a bit vague, a bit hazy to you, uh, maybe the very reason that you've come uh, this morning is because you, you know that there is more to be understood about God and about your life, um, well then can I commend to you uh, these four evenings that start tomorrow? It's a little course called Tales of the Unexpected. It takes some of the teaching of Jesus, some of the parables, some of those sort of stories with a spiritual meaning that he told, uh, and uses those as a springboard for discussion about the Christian faith. So if you would find that sort of um, informal uh, discussion useful, or you can think of somebody who would, and you'd like to bring them, um, then uh, Grab a Flyer uh, starts tomorrow night uh, at 8 here. A little further away uh, in July is a women's weekend away, and Teresa's going to tell us a bit about that. Debbie, do you come and join me up here? Um, ladies, in amongst the busyness of work um, and housework and washing and childcare and everything else in between, um, the Women's Weekend Away aims to give you a little oasis of calm. Um, and so that's what it's all about. There are leaflets telling you all about it at the back on the table. Um, but I've invited Debbie just to come and join me quickly. Um, Debbie, you've been on a Women's Weekend Away before, and I wondered if you could just give us a flavour of what goes on. Um, so you go away um, with a group of other women um, from Christchurch, um, stay in a nice house, and um, eat together, chat together, go to Southwold um, for the afternoon, and listen to some Bible talks together and pray together. Um, and if, if I was sitting here thinking, um, why should I go? Why should I give up a whole weekend to go away? And what one good reason could you give people? Um, I think it's a great chance to get to know other women and to, I guess, encourage one another as you um, hear from the Bible and chat together. Brilliant. Thank you 
very much. Um, so that's the Women's Weekend away. It's the first weekend of July. Um, we're going to go to a beautiful Victorian house, lots of lovely grounds um, in Suffolk. Um, we have an excellent um, speaker, a lady called Karen Saul. For those of you um, perhaps who went on the Cambridge Women's Convention last year, she spoke at that. Um, she's the chair of the Northern Women's Convention. Um, she really is excellent, and she'll be doing some talks on Romans for us. Um, she'll also be doing um, a seminar in the afternoon on reading the Bible um, with your child, um, and I'll be running a seminar um, sort of entitled Spiritual MOT. Um, so it's a chance just to come away, relax, get some great Bible teaching, not have to cook, um, and to um, make friendships with um, other ladies in the church. Um, flyers like that on the table, so do get your booking forms in. Uh, tonight is the last in the series of seminars that we've been uh, running through, uh, through the, uh, this term, uh, looking at issues connected with grace. Uh, and this one, amazing grace, grace will lead me home. Can I fall away if I'm a believer? Uh, what does that mean about how God holds me? Um, so uh, that's immediately after the evening service tonight with some food. Um, if you want to be a part of that. The evening service is the, the middle of three when we're looking at um, some emotions in the Psalms, uh, looking tonight at jealousy uh, and envy. The uh, last thing I want to tell you about is if you're wanting to work at your own reading of the Bible um, and your own prayer life, perhaps, two things to flag up. One is the next batch um, of studies from Explore Notes, July, August, September, um, available at the back. If you wanted to get hold of those and start to use those to help you um, in some personal Bible reading. And then you've got this flyer. Um, we've been flagging up the prayer workshop. Maybe you've been a bit unclear about what it is. Um, this flyer will give you a bit of a flavor on it. Not so much a, a, a time when we're going to think, what is prayer? How does prayer work? And sort of ask those sort of questions about it. But slightly more practical, how... How do I actually go about the business of praying? What might help me to pray more um, and help me to pray in, in ways rather differently to the ones that I manage at the moment? So it's going to be hands-on, practical, uh, as we meet together on Wednesday, 13th of June. Um, great. So we're going to pause now and let um, children and young people head down for their groups, uh, which means an excellent opportunity just to find out who sat nearby uh, welcome them if they're new to us um, and just introduce yourself for a moment or two.
we're going to we're going to spend a bit of time praying now, and then we're going to look at part of Matthew chapter 24 before Adam uh, comes to speak. So I'm going to hand over to Julie, who's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer. Then Keith's going to read. Adam's going to preach. Thanks, Julie. Let's bow our heads to pray. Dear Lord God, thank you for your constant love, your constant care, and your faithfulness to us. Thank you that even though we so often fail to love you as we ought to, your love for us is unfailing. Thank you that you never change. We thank you for your word, the Bible, that teaches us of you, that guides us, and through your spirit changes us to become more like you. Thank you that we are free in this country to gather together to read and learn from your word. Lord, as we read Matthew's Gospel and we study it this year, we long that we be growing closer to you. Help us, Lord, not just to read it and understand it, but to act on what we read and to be obedient to you. Help us, Lord, to become more wise, more obedient, and help us, Lord, to be living distinctive lives that speak of you. We pray for the Tales of the Unexpected course, which is starting tomorrow here at Christ Church. We do pray, Lord, that you'll be drawing the people that you intend to talk to along to that. We pray, Lord, that we'll have been brave um, inviting people. Um, and we pray, Lord, that through the course, you will really speak to those people and that many will come to know you. We continue to pray for the children who came to the Fitness Fanatics Holiday Club and for their families. Please, Lord, help them not to forget the gospel message that they so clearly heard. But we pray that you'll be drawing some of them to be coming along here on Sunday to find out more about you. And may they come to know you as their Lord and Saviour. We ask, Lord, that you will help us as a church to be more welcoming and creative in finding ways to share your gospel with others. We pray for the Jubilee Street Party. Please enable us to build relationships with the local community through that event and help us to show your love to those around us. And Lord, as individuals, we pray that you'll help us to be less selfish with our time and to be thinking of the needs of others before ourselves. And finally, we pray for the Thompson family um, as Ben's completing his training at Oak Hill. Please sustain them in their final weeks there and help them to prepare for the move um, for Ben's curacy. We thank you for the safe arrival of their third child, and we pray that you'll be enabling them to have enough sleep and patience with one another as they adapt to all the changes ahead of them. We ask all these prayers in your name and for your glory. Amen. The reading is taken from Matthew 24, um, starting at verse 14 um, to 35, and it can be found on page 1,000 of the the Pew Bibles. So starting at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, 
let the reader understand. Then let those who are, left, who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And in those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you will know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Thank you. Dr. R.T. France, a renowned English biblical commentator, published an 1,100-page commentary on Matthew alone. And his comment on today's passage in his commentary is this. Matthew 24 presents the interpreter with great difficulty. Amen. I would close in prayer now, except they're still making the coffee. So let's give it a go, okay? You good, Andy? Give it a go? Okay, Andy says yes. Because when you see a stratospheric passage like this, it just, it just makes you wonder. It's tempting to fall into one of two ditches. Either 
to overinterpret the prophecy and be looking then for Revelation's horns and trumpets and things behind every media headline. And the other ditch is then to just kind of roll your eyes and scan along till you find something you can actually do today. And I must confess that I tend towards that second ditch. But if you happen to be more dogmatic with end times charts, feel free. I just invite you to come up afterwards and speak to Pastor Steve. And just tell him all about it. Um, because even so, it is, it's encouraging. As I've been through this passage this last few weeks, it, it has meant something to me to understand and to grasp what did Christ mean for us to grasp here? Not more, but also not less. And so getting prophecy right is important. Because if we're honest with ourselves... It raises some pretty relevant, if not slightly unsettling, questions like, what can you know about the end? Will Greece usher in the end of the world? Did Chelsea already do it? Is the Antichrist a rising star in somebody's government as we speak? In many countries, believers have been talking for decades, asking, are we already in the tribulation? which for us in the West has actually seemed a pretty distant unreality. However, now it seems that not just parts of the world, but the whole world is coming apart, it seems. Overheating economically, war-torn, gridlocked politically with no way to fix it. So when we read prophetic passages like these, should we start matching the cast of characters to uh, good and evil, to today's politicos and maybe even religious figures? Should we take the words of Daniel and Jesus and John the Revelator and compare them to headlines and start triangulating our way to feel, to say, hey, we are right here in the overall scheme. What can we know? What must be a mystery? And what does it mean? After all, how do this really ultimately, I mean, this cosmic stuff, how does it impact my life? What will it matter? What are the consequences, whether I understand these words or not? Is it possible that some of our fears could be replaced by hope and confidence in God if we understood this better? So, let's take a look in the next few minutes at this most epic story, in which, by the way, you and I are cast, and see what it means for us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at these words spoken by your Son, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, not more but not less than we're meant to understand, and may it strengthen us for today and give us hope for tomorrow. Amen. Our family moved here to England last summer. We have really enjoyed it. Um, And we've noticed a few things. The English are refreshingly understated. And they like to use these diminutive words, things like nibbles. And speaking of nibbles, uh, it turns out that many ills and problems are solved by a nice cup of tea. Elevensies, onesies, twosies, whenever. And 
it also turns out, as one having lived in multiple cultures, it's immediately obvious that the British love, that the English love scaffolding. It's everywhere. For every job, there's a, there's a cobweb. <laughs> Call in the scaffolding. I mean, it's everywhere. And uh, by the way, speaking as American, I hope you realize that for us, ribbing and kidding is a form of affection, so feel the love here. But um, before we jump in, and the point of this is before we jump in and build an understanding of this passage to live in or live out, let's take just a minute and build an interpretive scaffolding around it so that we can find some firm footing because apocalyptic prophetic literature is not a straightforward job. And here are a few guidelines to give us a hand. Number one, biblical prophecy tends not to have a single but multiple fulfillments with ages in between. So think about, a, you know, if you're looking at a mountain range from left to right, you kind of see all the peaks all in a, all in a pan. Biblical prophecy is like swing that mountain range long ways. And now you're looking down and you see these peaks in succession and they look like they're touching and one comes out of the other but they may have miles in between. For example, um, call this the already not yet mountain range. For example, many Old Testament prophets spoke of that day. This was technical prophetical language, that day. And what they meant was that God would liberate the people of Israel from pagan captivity and restore them to the promised land, which happened in the early 500s BC. So, when Jesus uses this phrase, that day, in Matthew 24, 36, uh, he's, although in Jesus' time it was already fulfilled according to what the prophets meant, the near peak, if you will, uh, there is a sense in which it is also not yet fulfilled, and Jesus speaks of it as not yet fulfilled, referring to a far peak at the end of time in the ultimate liberating of God's people, uh, gathering them to their eternal and promised paradise. So the same prophecy has multiple meanings, which can incidentally be millennia apart. Another way to think of prophetic time is geological time. Uh, my wife Heather and I visited a very large and famous cluster of caves in America called Carlsbad Caverns. It's massive. It has a single mouth with these huge series of open spaces underground, just unbelievable stalactites and stalagmites the size bigger than giant redwoods and so we were starting the tour and the guide was explaining the historical and geological development of these caves and so i said well what happens next like what after and future from here and she said well the next thing is the mouth of the cave will collapse and you realize i'm on the tour and so i said well what do you mean next like how soon and she goes, oh, pretty soon, like, you know, 20 or 30,000 years. I took the tour. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Tim, after the service, just a minute ago, he, he said, oh, 20,000 years, that's, that's like a blip, that's like nothing. That just, that's not even geological time. But the point is that there are these huge tracks in between these prophetic peaks where, where they may be spoken very quickly, but they, they take much time to unfold. And uh, secondly, specifically and related to this idea of peaks in terms of our scaffolding, the New Testament end-time prophecy is not new stuff. It's not new material. It is usually a reapplication of Old Testament redemption prophecy and history. 
So in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Zephaniah, when they all speak about that day, they mean this near-peak fulfillment, redemption of Israel, release from pagan rule, return to the promised land. But the New Testament uses all of this language and reinterprets not just the metaphors, but the actual history as applying to Christians, you and me, spiritually now, having been freed from the, uh, uh, the bondage of sin, and physically and completely and ultimately for us again in the future. So even we have an already not yet, already from sin, but not completely. There will be a further and future fulfillment. And this, so Jesus' language that he uses, clouds, wings of the wind, that all this stuff is not brand new out of his imagination. It's all rooted in Old Testament history and symbols, which are millennia old and well understood. And it is encouraging and strengthening to me to see this continuity in the scarlet thread that God weaves through the Old Testament. Say, for example, you've got the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And then you have the budding staff of the high priest Aaron. And then you have the tree at Calvary. And then in Revelation 22, at the very end, you have the tree of life, which bears its fruit every, se- every month and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Thirdly and finally, the main point of biblical prophecy is not so much to inform us about the when and the how, but to confirm to us the who and the that. Who is in control? That there is a plan which will in fact play out in his time and in his way. For example, Jesus told his disciples, prophesied to them, if you will, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, I'll be crucified, raised on the third day. Now, why did Jesus tell them that? Was it so that then they could begin to figure out the exact details of all of these things and occurrences and predict when it would happen? Or maybe even organize resistance? No, it's quite the opposite. It, in fact, even though he warned them, it still took them by surprise. Christ told them this so that when it happened, they would recognize that this was not simply a web of conspiracy, but they would recognize that there was a who, a loving father, and a that, a plan at work. And this was the plan. Okay, there's our scaffolding. So now let's take a look at this prophecy and build up an understanding out of which we can live. And as we go into it, Try to think of this interpretive phrase. What God wants us to take out of it at least is this. No fear, no timeline, but hope in God. Now you could do entire classes, years, write books on eschatology and end times charts. And the best we can do is models, a variety of models. So let's summarize all those models today in this idea. No fear, no timeline, but hope in God. As Chris pointed out last week, chapters 24 and 5 really form a complete unit. And we need to keep the whole in mind as we begin to chop it up and take a look at little segments like we will this morning. The disciples began chapter 24 with a question. What will be the sign of the end of the age? What's the sign of the end of it all? And Jesus takes two chapters to work through the answer to this. Verses 1 to 14 last week basically said... There will be, summarizing the entire final age, there will be three things. There will be natural tribulations, earthquakes and famines and so forth. There will be uh, deceivers, false Christs, and there will be persecutions. 
none of which we have lacked for 2,000 years now. And then the verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. So that's the broad strokes of the whole end of the age, the Van Gogh Impressionism. There will be these things. There will be natural disasters. There will be persecutions. There will be false Christs. But noticeably, these are all anti-signs. You will see these deceivers come. That's not the end. You'll see these natural disasters. That's not the end. You will see persecutions. That's not the end. The one positive sign is the gospel will go to all the nations. That's the one positive sign that we're given that the end is near. And by the way, it should have been a clue that the end was not imminent to them as this world mission would take, as we say in England, a bit of time, especially on foot. Then... In verse 1528, beginning our segment today, Christ moves from Impressionism to realism. So he offers a bit more detail about an intensification of these signs that will happen at the end. Sort of like those blow-up squares on a map. You know, you see this big general map, and then there's like this, and then it kind of shows you the detail of what's happening in there. That's what Jesus does now in verses 15 to 28 about that whole kind of general period of stuff. So... I believe that these verses, 1528, had a near-peak fulfillment in 70 AD because A, all the signs happened, and B, Christ says in verse 34 that this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. So, I think they had a near-peak fulfillment in 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. More on that in a minute. I believe they will have a far-peak fulfillment also at the end of the age. The reason being that one thing, the main thing that all these signs point to has not yet happened. Christ has not returned. So look with me in verse 15 here. Echoing the words of Daniel from 530 BC, the temple is described as being desecrated by the abomination of desolation. Now before you get too tongue-tied there, it simply put is the desecration of the Holy of Holies by pagan invaders. This inner room of the temple where the priest would meet with God on the annual day of atonement. So Jesus' listeners, when they heard him say, when you see the abomination causes desolation, they would have heard that and thought of that as already fulfilled. Because in 168 BC, the Roman ruler Antiochus Epiphanes set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed pigs there. This would have been what we call a desecration. So they would have understood this as already fulfilled. But Jesus speaks of it as having another future fulfillment, which again happened in 70 AD, when the Roman general Titus burned and leveled the temple. And after this desecration, Christ speaks of persecution breaking out now. And the following picture in these next few verses is one of speed. Verse 16, flee quickly, because when it gets bad, it will happen urgently. Don't go back into your house. Verse 18, don't return to the, from the field for your coat even. Verse 19, be mindful of the vulnerable, such as pregnant or nursing mothers. Verse 20, pray, because winter and Sabbath will hinder flight with poor travel conditions and the non-availability of supplies. Verse 21, they will be the absolute darkest of times. Verse 22, God will cut them short for the sake of his people. So that whole picture is one of dire urgency and intense suffering. And then... Verse 28, I mean, verse 23 to 28, Christ repeats his warning from the earlier chapter with a bit more detail. Under the duress of this persecution, there will emerge many who claim to be saviors. Don't believe the hype of these secret saviors. They are hoaxes. And so as not to leave any doubt, 
and perhaps even anticipating this gap between the peaks so that we're not all wondering, did we really miss it? Did it happen and we didn't see it? Christ concludes this section by telling us plainly that when he returns as king, verse 27, uh, you cannot miss it any more than you can miss lightning. And you will know in 28 when you see birds of prey circling, there is carrion below. No one will wonder. All will know. So in verses 15 to 28, I hear Christ saying, don't worry about the exact timeline. And in fact, don't even worry. Look again in verse 15. Christ says, so when you see, in other words, when these things start to happen, when, they, when it starts to happen around you, then flee. But don't waste your time worrying about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own. You'll not need to figure it all out ahead of time. It will unfold clearly around you in its time. In verse 25, see, I have told you ahead of time. Period. He doesn't say, I've told you so that you can pinpoint it, pre-predict it, and already be on a beach somewhere sipping mimosas when all this goes down. No. Quite the opposite. He says the faithful will be at their post. You'll be in your homes. You'll be working in your fields. And when it starts, then flee. And the only other command we have from Jesus here is an anti-command. Just don't believe the imposters. When I appear, you will know. So in sum, don't fear, but be faithful. Don't believe the secret saviors. I will reveal myself next in glory. And all the nations will see. Even the critics will admit that Christ's life, crucifixion, and resurrection were publicly recorded events with multiple witnesses. And so also will be his return. No fear, no timeline, faith and faithfulness. And now for the hope in God part. In verse 29, there's a transition. Up to now, Jesus has been discussing the signs of these persecutions and the deceptions that will characterize the last age. And now he shifts to the description of his actual return at the end of the age, at the end of the end. And Christ answers the question, sort of, from verse 3 that the disciples had asked, tell us what will be the sign of your coming, the end of the age. Now Jesus answers, after all these anti-signs, meaning not this and not this or this, except for the gospel going to all the world in verse 14, that's the one sign. Jesus answers, not when exactly, but when it is time. When the age of mission is over, after the tribulation of those days, Christ tells us the who and the that. The next thing is that he will come. Verse 29, there will be a great darkness and then the day will dawn. The Son of Man will gather his people out of this suffering to their final redemption, and all will be complete. Just as he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, so also he will return to gather his own. It will be a wonderful day of deliverance, and it will be. Christ closes this segment in verses 32 to 35 with the sign of the fig tree. And this is a good corrective because up till now I've been more emphasizing and I think the passage is more emphasizing, don't worry, you'll know when it comes. But I think it's a good corrective, because even though we don't want to create these overdeveloped end-time predictions, we also don't want to shut our eyes to clear signs when they come. 
So just as the blossoming of the fig tree alerts to summer, so also these events will alert us to his coming. They saw the signs at the beginning of the end in AD 70. We will see them again at the end of the end when he returns. And again, in verse 34, Christ reemphasizes the speed of onset. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so they who were living at the time, Matthew would have been alive when all these things happened in AD 70. Most of this first generation of believers would have been alive and seen what he's talking about. As they passed over that near peak and saw it, we still await the far peak, the not yet, with open eyes, in faith, and faithfulness. Okay, Adam, seriously, seriously. Doesn't all this yuck just frighten you a little bit? Uh, I gotta confess, I'm not keen on wanting to go through all this. However, God's truth comes to the rescue. First, the truth that his grace is sufficient for us. When that day comes, God will provide what we need then. And meanwhile, God provides what we need for today. So my question really is not, when that day comes, if I live to see it, how will I survive it? My question is, am I responding to, am I being fully obedient to the grace that God has given me for today? Am I giving and loving and serving and forgiving the people around me today as God has given me grace and opportunity. Since that is what I will be held accountable for for before God, not on some hypothetical contingencies. And secondly, keep in mind the who and the that, that there is an all-loving God, an all-powerful God who has a plan, and this plan is working towards its fulfillment and end, and we have seen the pattern repeat over and over. And further, you and I, we have a role in the story of God. It is our role in this last age, not only to worship Him, not only to love, honor Him, but also to be His ambassadors and to prepare the way for the return of the King. And if you've had the pleasure, for example, of reading Tolkien's epic, The Lord of the Rings, you know that at the end of the third volume, Aragorn is crowned the king of Gondor and the Lord of the Western Lands. And knowing this, let's just say you kind of peeked at the end to figure it out. When you go back through the epic, you never have to fear how unthinkable the odds However tiny this little band of the noble against the countless enemy hordes. However dark the darkness, you don't fear, mostly, knowing that Aragorn will be crowned at the end. And by the way, these little hobbits who were of no account played a key role in this, a key role. 
when, when Aragorn will be crowned or how he will get there are utterly hidden. You just see it develop. But the who and the that are absolutely sure. And this is the hope that the reader has based on a known outcome. This is the same sure hope that we share as Christians based on a known outcome, evidenced by his resurrection, attended to or attested to by his Holy Spirit, and we're waiting for that final fulfillment. So in sum, we are in the last days. How many more days? We don't know. God's not revealed it to us, thankfully. But we do know that God, through us, is taking the good news of the gospel to every tongue, including the Japanese, to every tribe, including the Orchard Parkins. And when God's patience is complete, not run out, but fulfilled in that he has delayed judgment until all who have believed will believed, and mission is over, then the end will come with the return of the king for his own. If you're here this morning... And you're not sure you're a member of that royal family. Please stick around. Speak to one of us, any of us. These passages at the end, of the end, about the end, are a comfort to those of us who believe about our eternal and ultimate salvation. They are a warning to those who don't believe of real and impending judgment to come. So say yes to the mercy of God now so that when you meet your judge, he will also be your friend. In Tolkien's story, the elf lord Elrond calls a council of the wise and the great. You may remember this from the first volume. And among them is a great warrior, Boromir, who disparages what seems to him this unknown, scruffy-looking ranger. And in the movies, it's uh, Legolas, but in the book, it's actually Bilbo who steps up and speaks on Aragorn's behalf. And this is what Bilbo says. All that's gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. And deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire will be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be the blade that was broken, and the crownless again shall be king. Be encouraged, friends. Christ was broken. Christ has risen. And the king is coming. Father in heaven, thank you for these words of assurance from Christ. Thank you for your patterns of redemption which confirm throughout history the prophecies, the patterns that we know will continue until all have come in. Great is your faithfulness. May our souls find rest in you alone, our rock and our salvation. May you be a fortress strong against our foes. May we not be shaken. You are our delight and our reward, everlasting, never failing our Redeemer, and God. Amen.
downstairs. Uh, for now we'll close with a final prayer. Take some words from uh, Paul's first letter to Christians in Thessalonica. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.